0: Hi everybody. welcome to episode number nine of Ask Us Anything. I'm Mark Graben, the VP of Improvement and Innovation Services here at Kynexus.
1: And I'm Greg Jacobson, CEO and co-founder of Kynexus.
0: So I'll jump right in. you know this is on the theme of Ask us every, anything and we get some uh, anything type questions. So once uh, you know you're both you're busy guys, where was your last vacation? And maybe a good question was when? Greg, when, when do you find some time for this?
1: Well, I just got back from Colorado. Um, as, as some of you might know, we have offices in, in Austin and Dallas. And when we're talking about July, August, in those places, it is hot, 100 degrees every day. So always try to get up to the mountains of Colorado in the summer um, and uh, just had a great time. I mean, you know, highs of 80, lows of 55, hiking, enjoying. Um, and, and in the modern world we live in, I was actually able to kind of keep up with everything, and I did a 50% work and 50% play. So I was working on Mondays, Thursdays, and half of Fridays out of Colorado and playing on the weekends and Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So it was a lot of fun. What about you, Mark?
0: Well, good. Yeah. Um, uh, contrary to popular belief, I also get away occasionally. My wife and I just got back. Yesterday, we had sort of a long uh, five day weekend in Oregon in uh, the Willamette Valley wine country. So very little work, but uh, a lot of touring around. The weather was beautiful. Like you said, getting out of the Texas heat uh, was a big part of that plan. So we're going to move into, you know, other continuous improvement topics, but there's one other question that came in maybe kind of related. Here's a good bridge. What book have you most recently read? Greg?
1: Great question. And uh, I'm, I'm finding myself never reading just one book. So, I'm uh, currently reading three books, one was completed, and, um, and that was my fun book, Adolescence of P1, was, uh, my cousin recommended it, kind of in this, you know, offhanded comment, we were talking about artificial intelligence, and, um, and this was one of the early 1970s first forays into that, a lot of fun, if you're into kind of light reading, and into the kind of sci-fi in the kind of computer-esque type of things but um, P1 was this uh, this IBM computer that basically jumped and became a mind of its own and started connecting all the computers and obviously it's uh, as relevant today as it was 40 years ago when it was written um, thinking yeah also also reading Charles um, Duhigg his second book and remember his first book The Power of Habit Mark and I we talk about it all the time the the psychology of an organization is, is the most difficult thing to, to capture and lean. That's why people say you are a lean practitioner you practice lean. It's not about the tools because it, the soft things actually are, are, are that kind of that glue, if you will. And I think you find the soft things oftentimes in places where you don't expect it. And Charles, um do think, is one of those authors that, that writes about it. Power of Habits great, but um, Smarter, Faster, Better, I've kind of pulled it up here for everyone to see, is his second book, a lot of fun, he's talking about eight characteristics of people that are doing things smarter, faster, better. So he talks about motivation, teams, focus, talk about aviation, um, and I always just find it amazing where kind of these... You know, aviation concepts and, and nuclear concepts and, and lean concepts find their way into the world because these are just just these are just normal principles, the way humans really should behave um, in kind of organism esque ways in, in companies. So, highly recommended so far, about halfway through. And then and then the other one we were kind of prepping for this, you said is a classic and it was a classic perhaps for, for for people. But when this came out, I would have just been starting residency. In emergency medicine and so I wasn't reading it but Jim Collins Good to Great where he talks about some seven characteristics of companies that completely outperform the market by you know you know 5 and 10 and 15 X over 15 year periods so and not over these short terms and I'm really talking about first opening chapter guess what it's about leadership yeah. we heard that before so um, what about you Mark?
0: Well, so I start a lot of books. One that I actually got all the way through and finished uh, is a book from actually 1994 called Comeback. Uh, it won the Pulitzer Prize written by two journalists, so squarely nonfiction. You can see a car plant there. But it's a book from '94, looking back at the auto industry in the early 80s as Toyota and Honda were entering the U.S., um, there's a lot of early history um, going through the early 90s um, about General Motors and Toyota and their joint venture factory in California called NuMe, which opened, I believe, in 84. And so, yeah, it's, at this point, it's, it's history. You know, I started in the auto industry in 1995, right after a lot of this had happened. But I, I found it really fascinating because it talks about, there's a couple chapters about culture change um, and and leadership and why did GM not better take advantage of the opportunities to learn from Toyota and um, why so I I had a chance to reach out I did a podcast interview with one of the guys who's featured um, in a couple of chapters Steve Barra he was one of the first GM people to go work at Toyota and it it makes me think about the um, healthcare field here in the year 2016. Why is culture change challenging? Why do people sometimes stick their heads in the sand when there are competitive challenges? And, and a lot of it comes down to culture and leadership, and I guess that's a key part of improvement in what we do here at Kinexis. So I, I found that book not just about interesting history, but it was res- making me think about what's happening today.
1: Yeah, and, and I think um, kind of referencing one of the other webinars that we've had in the past, um, Mark Jaben with the J-A-B-E-N, an, an ER doctor, really got into the science of change and, and how kind of the brain works and, and, and we're kind of getting into psychology or the stuff that's that's really hard to wrap your hands around, you know, a bit beyond a five wise or a fishbone where you can kind of see it and touch it and, and, and work your hands through it. But the other stuff is arguably harder. Mm-hmm. And it's like becoming enlightened, you know, if you're a Buddhist monk, I mean, that's just, there's not like a 10 step process to do that, you know, yeah. so interesting stuff.
0: Yeah. So we have a question here from uh, Raul. Uh, what will key company culture, what, well, we're going to each pick one element, as many, we could talk about this all day. What's one element of company culture that promotes continuous improvement? Greg, you go first.
1: So, the first thing that came to my mind because mark was like we could literally spend the entire hour just on this one question great question but the first word that came to my mind was trust I think an organization that doesn't have trust that doesn't have you know the leaders eat leaders eat last uh, Simon sinek high oxytocin levels is an organization that's not an experiment that's not going to hand over the kind of controls, not saying we're going to get out of the cockpit, but just allowing people to come to the improvement table to participate, and uh, there are organizations that people are really focused on themselves and making sure that they're, they've got a job the next day instead of kind of not worrying, I trust everyone I work with, I'm, I'm you know, secure here, and uh, I, therefore I'm gonna give my ideas freely and we're gonna, you know, come up and we're gonna ultimately, you know, I always say that what does innovation look like at a microscopic level? It looks like continuous improvement. I mean, that's, that's innovative companies are doing this really well and uh, those are companies that um, have high levels of trust in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and, and I would add trust is not just something that exists, it's something that needs to be developed and I think if we have a starting point where there's low trust between where employees don't trust their leaders a lot of times leaders don't trust their employees somebody's got to break that cycle and I think that's got to be leadership to start doing some things to build and develop trust one of um, I think the key aspects of a company culture is a commitment to no layoffs due to lean or no layoffs due to continuous improvement that's a way of trying to build and demonstrate trust and. Leaders might say, you know, no one's going to lose their job because of lean and the employees might not believe them. Why? Because there's no trust yet. So that, that I think sometimes uh, that, that needs to be a process. Um, I think leaders can build trust by showing humility and trying to, the point I was going to make was the idea of getting, getting past um, the, the notion that as a leader, you have to have all the answers or you're the only one who can have answers. Or you're the only one that can take action to drive improvement so I think working together with your employees to ask questions to understand problems can build trust and I think asking them what they think we can do to solve these problems or to make things better can build trust in both directions leaders can show hey I trust you as an employee I'm not leaving you totally on your own we're going to work together and leaders can build trust in their employees by seeing generally the employees have really good ideas. They deal with problems on a daily basis and with some lean concepts and some coaching and again working together. Um, yeah. I, I think that's one of the really important things to start building a continuous improvement culture.
1: That's great, let's move on. Yep.
0: Okay, another question from Curtis. Uh, for more than 10 years, our full-time OE, or probably means operational excellence group, has followed a ground-up approach, or what we might call bottom-up improvement. A combination of the competitive climate in our industry and some recent success we've had with rapid Kaizen events, I assume he means uh, events, have helped senior leaders see that they need lean education so they can be active lean leaders. What do you recommend we do and avoid doing to train them well? Um, maybe I'll, I'll take that first. Mm-hmm. I, it sounds like they've started participating In those um, Kaizen events or rapid improvement events I think that's a key thing leaders need to learn by doing they need to be involved in problem solving they need to learn the PDSA plan do study adjust cycle they need to understand whether you call it a3 thinking or rapid improvement events I've seen it be really effective where you have leaders start solving problems in their own work before they start asking their employees you know say hey you all go improve things I think leaders need to learn by doing they can see that problem-solving isn't always easy that it's not always a straightforward linear process and I think that helps build um, understanding and allows them to be better coaches for their employees that that would be one thing to do or continue doing getting involved not just sitting and listening about lean or reading about lean
1: that's great to me I think what I can contribute the most of this question is that there's a mantra in medicine that talks about see one, do one, teach one, right? And and I think that it, it speaks to it speaks to the fact that um, it's really difficult for I think adult learners to kind of sit down and learn for a year and then try to apply that. So that 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 see one, do one, teach one kind of recognizes that you could kind of compartmentalize and break things up into really small chunks, then kind of watch it, then you're gonna learn a different level when you do it and then you're gonna even learn probably the most deep comprehension of something is when you start teaching it. In college, I, I was a, um, a TA and, and, a, and a tutor for a couple of different classes and even though I rocked in those classes when I took them, I really didn't fully comprehend the material until I realized I I was actually going to teach this to other people and it gave me such a deep uh, appreciation. So I think it's just in time, right? It's, it's don't overload people, give them a small, have them apply it, have them teach it. I also think there's not going to be one answer here, right? I think there's going to be some places where pulling a person out of a workflow for a full day makes a lot of sense. There's going to be other places where that's completely unrealistic. So try to break it up into five or ten minute, you know, quick little lesson. But um, that's, my, that's my take on it.
0: Yeah, and I think the one challenge was see one, do one, teach one, or I think it's not always one, but it might be see a few, do yeah, a course. few, right, right. one. Um, but I think people, and especially at executive levels, I found are really uncomfortable with the idea of not being really good at something. There's that expertise trap. And, and I find executives become executives because they're experts in something. They're experts in medicine. They're experts in nursing. They hopefully have become experts in management as they've risen through the ranks. And lean puts people into a really awkward discomfort zone. And I found that could be one of the biggest challenges. The lean concepts are simple, but letting go of some of those um, sort of mental traps Not wanting to admit I don't know the answer but let's go figure it out I mean I think those are things that require coaching so I guess that's my other point um, to Curtis's question Uh, lean is learned by doing but with a qualified coach and somebody the executives need to say yes I'm willing to have you coach me I think a leader has to give that permission especially if it's a lean leader or facilitator or sensei or whatever term you use that's a few notches down in the organization you have to sort of get past that formal power dynamic, sort of like people talk about in aviation safety and the cockpit power dynamic or the operating room power dynamic. There's, there's a power dynamic in organizations more broadly.
1: In your aviation example made me think of an analogy of how I like to think of improvement coaches, but I, it's almost like a, the improvement coach or the improvement team is, is sitting in the control tower and they're talking to you know, hundreds of planes and each one of those planes might be a pocket of improvement, a department, a leader, and, and they're just kind of touching base. Hey, hey, Mark, where are you at? What's your altitude? Cool, this and that, all right, so we're gonna recommend you do this and go on this flight path and this and then and then let the person go and then check in with them again in you know, yeah. um, a, a, a normal interval, if you will. And, and I think kind of trying to create that dynamic that um, I can help be your guide into a, a new way to do things versus I'm going to tell you how for you to do your job better. Um, right. May help people kind of accept that kind of role where you know I'm the boss. I'm wearing the boss hat, but I'm actually going to be you know taking advice from someone that's a couple notches down. So yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, so we have another question here for uh, from Sam, and I think he was reacting to a blog post of yours, Greg, and I'll make the plug, go to blog.kinexus.com if you want to read blog posts that we all write. But uh, Sam asked, I was wondering if you, Dr. Jacobson, or uh, Mark could expand on your comment. Quote, healthcare is a decade and more behind other high-risk industries in its attention to ensuring basic safety. Some say medical errors are now the third leading cause of death in the United States. Some estimate it as roughly 250,000 people per year. Has any other high-risk industry ever had a fraction of that many deaths? I understand that this number is an estimate, but it seems like healthcare maybe is more behind than a decade. Could you elaborate on your thoughts? So, uh, Greg.
1: This is a really complicated question. Um, So I think in order to kind of simplify it down to a short concise answer, we're going to have to just make some assumptions and, and just kind of go with me a little bit whether the number is 250,000 or whether the number is 5,000, I kind of don't care. I remember being an intern and sitting in a chest pain class and, uh, or a lecture about chest pain and, and, and being asked the question, so Greg, what is the acceptable missed percentage for heart attacks for an ER doctor? Yeah, and you kind of think about it. Okay, well, it's really hard to tell if someone's having a heart attack. Sometimes the EKGs are normal. Sometimes all the blood work is normal, but they're still having a heart attack. The right answer, and luckily I, I said the right answer, is zero.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? I mean that zero. Now we understand that that's probably not going to happen in your career. You're going to miss these things. So you know whether it's a quarter million people or whether it's ten thousand people. I, I don't. I don't really care about the answer. What I care about is the number that we should be striving for is zero. Whether we can get there or not is is a different kind of topic. Number two, I don't think you can really kind of kind of make it a complete apples-to-apples, apples, um, you know, we're a little bit apples-to-oranges, right? Because yes, you know, nuclear power obviously isn't killing a quarter million people a year. Yes, um, aviation is not killing a quarter million people a year. I don't think you can say, okay, well, so the numbers in healthcare, because everyone is engaging in healthcare, right? And people do die as part of the life process, right? So it's it's inevitable that there's gonna be some kind of healthcare going on and a person's gonna die and whether there was a direct relationship or not, we can. that's why I said I don't wanna care about the numbers, but um, what I do think is whether we're a decade behind, whether we're two decades behind, um, we're behind mm-hmm. and we should recognize that we're behind and we should, start doing things that other industries have figured out. I mean, I was first introduced to kind of aviation, um, high reliability organization type behaviors, which directly come out of aviation and and nuclear. I was first introduced to that in 2001, 2002 at Vanderbilt. They were, I think, very early in that process.
0: The, The original Institute of Medicine report about medical errors and harm and death came out in 1999.
1: Right. Wow. so so I I don't hundred percent know maybe mark you know about this and this is not necessarily lean but we, we do feel that these behaviors and these practices are extremely synergistic and organizations should be doing all of these things um, I don't know exactly how long you know aviation had been practicing those but certainly in the 70s planes were dropping out of the sky at pretty regular frequency and and they were like basically recognizing hey, if we really want, I mean, it was probably a business decision as much as anything, right? If we really want for people that this is the main way people are going to get around, we're going to have to get these planes to stop dropping out of the sky, right? Right. People planes, planes were colliding,
0: planes were colliding, hundreds of people being killed, and it was coming down to things like human error, um, hierarchies in the cockpit of the second uh, officer not speaking up to the captain, um, so yeah, there, there were lessons learned there. And you know, to your point, Greg, we can set the goal of zero, but yet at the same time realize humans are not perfect. And I think the, the overlap between the patient safety movement and the lean movement would say, you know, A, people aren't perfect. Don't expect them to be superhuman. Recognize the human factors and the risk of when people get fatigued, people forget things, people aren't communicating clearly, and trying to build better systems instead of saying, hey, don't make mistakes.
1: Exactly. And, and recognizing that we have a problem, you know, whether that number is, you know, it, the number isn't 300, you know, the, the number is certainly in the thousands, if not tens of thousands, and, and maybe even in the hundreds of thousands. Yeah.
0: So. And, and, and these are all estimates with these numbers, whether it was 44,000 or 400,000 or 100,000. Um, there's two things that really interest me about healthcare. One is there's a lack of transparency, a lack of reporting, and that's for a number of reasons: fear of lawsuits, um, reputation, other issues. Aviation has non-punitive mandatory reporting systems, and many have advocated for that in healthcare. But healthcare sort of plays both sides of the card. We don't—they don't report, so there's not good data. Then when people do estimates, they poo-poo the estimates and say, so, "Well, you don't know," because well, like, well, come on—you know, we, can resolve the estimate problem if. There were more transparency right. and I, I think the other thing that's interesting is if you look at the auto industry, Toyota had problems a few years ago. They were estimated to have killed maybe thirteen people in the u s General Motors had ignition switch problems they were estimated to kill maybe thirty five people and there's those CEOs got hauled in front of Congress and whether getting questioned or lectured by Committees and televised hearings really does anything to improve or not? I find it interesting that healthcare that that issue doesn't get the same level of attention, regardless of whether the number is 40 or 400 or 400,000.
1: And it's a when 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 an airplane crashes, everyone knows. Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, Uh, there's no covering that up. (laughs) Right, there's no covering that up. And when a medical error occurs. Sometimes not even all the people on the team that is taking care of the patient is aware that that happened, let alone the system in you know in 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 in, in total or the you know the family or well you know they were kind of already sick already and they were they already had a disease that had a twenty-five percent mortality. So yeah, we kind of messed up on the dosage, but I mean did it really caught? and so it, it, what it's going to take is it's going to take an environment where people are expected to report, and when they do report, it's, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm using this word at the, at the fear of it sounding wrong, but it, it should be celebrated. It shouldn't be, they shouldn't be scorned, and they shouldn't be punished. They need to feel very safe saying, hey, I made this mistake, made this error, let's look at this. The chances are it's going to be the Swiss cheese model. It wasn't just one person, right? And, and then people, you know, kind of gather around that in a, in a, in a way that um, makes people, and, and I get it, it's going to sound weird, but makes people feel good about uncovering and solving these things.
0: Well, and I think the issue of, you know, if you think about aviation. There's no hiding a plane crash. There would be hiding of a near miss, a near collision, a near mishap. And that yeah. non-punitive reporting system pretty much requires people to report the near miss, so problem solving can occur, learning can occur, future prevention can can occur. And I think that's a huge opportunity in healthcare. There are ratios of for every instance of harm, there are eight to ten near misses, and right. you know we need to catch things when it's at the level of unsafe conditions or near misses before it escalates to harm
1: uh, or death. And Mark, you may know about this more, but my understanding of that rule is if a a pilot or a team member uh, in aviation doesn't report it in a certain period of time, then they're like liable for it, but if they report it, they're they're, okay, but uh, there's some kind of impression that like as long as you're going through this system, you are like 100% protected. When you veer away from the system is when you can get in trouble, so they're really incentivizing to, to talk about these things and you know they can find patterns and you know start looking at um, um, if things can really be systemed out can be processed out of uh, errors can be you know error yeah All
0: right. so we've got about five yeah. minutes let's try to get two more questions in. one is from uh, it's uh, Fozzie who is uh, watching live so hello um, how can we measure the level of employees engagement what measures can we use is there an assessment tool um, I'll, I'll take a step of this first I I think and, and Kinexa supports this So Greg maybe you can talk to that I mean you know there, there's surveys and I think surveys are helpful I think a key measure of uh, engagement or morale or whatever you call it is the number of ideas that people are bringing forward if I were to pick one single measure I guess, well, I guess one would be Are people showing up to work so what are your absenteeism rates? What are your uh, turnover rates? Those can be measured more frequently, more real time than the surveys. But I think another key thing is, are, are people coming forward with ideas and then what percentage of those are being implemented? I think that's um, it's easy to measure, and I think that's really important.
1: Yeah, and and I'm going to just focus on the Kinexa side of this because I think Mark is, is absolutely correct. Turnover rates and absenteeism, there's probably lots of other... Kind of behavioral things that can be looked at that can that can measure this. But I mean, we have an entire section of our reporting area all about engagements and the, and the type of things that, that we are reporting on. Um, that's just by the fact that you're using KineXus, we're able to capture this data at a click of a button and, and show you. And so our um, improvement coaches, the our customers, the people that are driving kind of the improvement work at the individual organizations, use this stuff all the time to figure out you know, what departments are engaged and what areas and what teams are. Number of OIs, um, opportunities for improvements or whatever your organization has labeled those improvements. Number of improvements per person annualized. And and we know that numbers below one are, are really bad. A lot of organizations do really well with numbers between one and two. And really high performing organizations are doing greater than 10 to 15 Um, Per year per person and and we have organizations that are doing that as well We have the ability to look at if you've used the system or if you've logged into the system and we know what percent So those are very easy ways to determine engagement because if you're logging into the system You're reading about improvement work. If you're using the system you're engaged in that improvement process we also can show what percent of your population of your company employees are actually involved in some role in an improvement? And so we we obviously like to see the number of people that have no role or no engagement in any improvement or in any project in the system, we like that number to be very close to zero, right? And, yeah. and we find in highly engaged organizations that that many people are involved in many different improvements or projects, and so they'll 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 see their kind of their high end users that percentage will be very high. So um, lots of different ways to kind of slice and dice that. We we know for example also in the system you can really see oh well this department the um, you know the the this plant is doing 10 OIs per 10 improvements per person per year. Wow, they're really engaged, but. We can kind of start slicing and dicing that and go, oh, well, there's actually only a pocket of about 20 people that are representing the, you know, the activity for 500 people. That's not very engaged. And so, in KineXis, we we kind of bring all that, you know, very easy to be seen. And I think those are all kind of critical um, if we're talking about engagement in continuous improvement activity. And we know obviously, the more you engage in improvement, continuous improvement activity the greater the, um, the culture you'll have of continuous improvement. So,
0: yeah, great. it becomes a very self-perpetuating cycle. Yes. Engagement, I think, like trust, doesn't just exist. It has to be created. You have to work at it. Leaders need to work at it. You know, so as, as we wrap up here, I guess you know my final point would be, you know, if people bemoan a lack of trust, you need to ask, what are you doing to build trust? I've heard people complain about a lack of engagement. Our doctors aren't engaged. I'll say, well, what are you doing to engage your doctors like don't be passive it's right. an active uh, it's an active term and, and when once you start that get that ball rolling and then it becomes very self-perpetuating but at some point we've got to stop the old dysfunctional cycles um, again I think that's leadership's responsibility. So, okay enough we're gonna kind of make a clean break try to work on building a better culture and working together to do so so that is, I think, the time we have. Um, Fozzie, we'll, I think we'll start the next Ask Us Anything in about a month with uh, your second question. Um, William had a question about getting engagement and um, freeing up time. We do have a webinar about how to create time for continuous improvement. I would suggest go to our webinar library at webinar.kinexus.com. Or no, I think it's actually kinexus.com slash webinars. Sorry, or go to kinexus.com, look for the on-demand webinar library and look for that. We have have our next webinar, I'll make a quick plug on August 23rd, a presentation by Sam McPherson, who I've gotten to know over the last couple years. He's not only a former Toyota guy, but he was a Army Green Beret and a Special Forces trainer and um, just really fascinating background. He's gonna be talking about the art and science of lean leadership. So I encourage you, again, kinexus.com slash webinars. You can sign up for that on August 23rd. So Greg, do you have a final thought to leave everyone I mean, on?
1: A simple thank you, Mark, for you know putting on a great uh, webinar uh, season, our 2016 webinar series has been unbelievable. We, in Kinexus, our motto, our mantra, our mission is to spread continuous improvement. and. That's gonna it takes a lot of different shapes one of the the things that we we pride ourselves is I, I think we are producing a, um, a, a really good mind share a really good um, library of, of different uh, webinars and ebooks and blogs to get you thinking I, I can't tell you almost every week um, People are saying oh I we use your blog you know all the time, and it just it gives me you know fodder to to think sometimes we just send it to everyone. Hey, read this. And we try to keep them short and concise and to the point. So um, please take a look at all of the uh, different literature and, and webinars, et cetera, that we're, we're doing. We're spending a lot of time as a company and a lot of energy doing that. So
0: yeah, there's a lot of great stuff, not just for our customers, but people who are part of the broader continuous improvement community, whether that's in healthcare or manufacturing or services lean and other methodologies Um, we invite you if this is your first time watching one of our webinars like Greg said check out our YouTube channel you find our website kinexus.com look for us on social media and we want to uh, thank you for taking time to watch today
1: have a great day guys. thanks so much